hasn't changed since I was 16. I'm still chasing elusive dreams. You're listening to Grace, Geltman, and Weld on the Hammer Factor. Take it away, boys. All right, welcome to Hammer Factor, episode 52, the world's toughest edition. Uh, it's been a month since we, it's been a month since we recorded here at the Hammer Factor, and uh, it's like a summer break. On the uh, horn today, we have Whitewater Legend, co-owner of Immersion Research, John Weld. Also, we have policy director for the Outdoor Alliance, former North Fork champion. And before I get into this, guys, Badfish Sup is the official paddleboard of Interior Secretary Ryan Zinke, IR <laughs> co-founder and whitewater <laughs> legend John Weld, and retired spandex-wearing Dennis Everywhere. Badfish was born in Salida, Colorado, when two paddling friends started trying to figure out how to build boards you could surf on river waves. Today, Badfish makes boards for all types of paddling, whether you want to run, or run and surf rivers, surf and paddle in the ocean, or like John Weld, just go for a mellow paddle in flat water contemplating your path to achieving Earl. For the month of June, we are offering free shipping to Hammer Factor listeners on any inflatable board. Just use the code WELDSUPS, all caps. <laughs> That's WELDSUPS, all caps, at checkout. Check out our 2018 lineup at www.badfishsup.com. Uh, Colorado Beatitude is attainable. You just need a bad fish boy to get there. I've been waiting so long to read that. <laughs> that was the best copy, copy yet. <laughs> Did you write that copy? Uh, no, I didn't. No, Mike. Mike Harvey, uh, co-owner there at Bad Fish, wrote that copy. And I get to read that over and over for the next couple episodes. So. <laughs> we have the most uh, codependent, disturbing relationship with the state of Colorado. <laughs> it's I mean, like, there would be many counselors who advise Colorado just to walk away from this. We're like, we're, not like, look we're like the abusive boyfriend, you know? <laughs> oh, man. So we got a good show lined up. Are, are you in Hood River yet, Weld? I saw some pictures of you living living in a van or living in a trailer by the river. What's going on? We sold our house on Friday, and now we're living in a camper trailer for the next two months. <laughs> just just easing into to gorge life one step we're at a time. Yeah, this is where I expect this is where I expected my life to be at this point. <laughs> Waiting to take delivery right on. on the new Sprinter van. Right, I'm right on track. No, we're, our rental property doesn't start till August 1st. We're kind of in a holding pattern right now. But we're behind IR and a camper trailer. So it's it's something else. So you kind of sleep out there and you can go inside to use the bathroom and that kind of thing? Yeah, you're getting the picture. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's so cool. Well, outdooralliance.net. Is that right, Lewis? Is that the right URL? .org. Outdooralliance.org. I'll edit that out. Don't worry. Outdoor, where, where are we going with this? Hang on. <laughs> Outdooralliance.org. Get on the email list. I've got some good emails, but we're not going to cover those emails because you should be on the list to get those. But we have a couple topics to throw over to you here, Lewis. Um, let's start with uh, which one of these do you want to start with? I don't know. These are all kind of quick hits. What's the, what's the NPR one? The NPR one is about the... Uh, there's basically already probing to do some mining in the national monument that. Yeah. I mean, there's, it sounds like there's mining operations that are, you know, immediately have their sights set on the reduced boundaries of what was formerly Grand Staircase Escalante national monument. And uh, I mean, this is, these are the threats that we were concerned about, you know, coming to, coming to fruition when you know, this whole conversation about reducing monument boundaries started and, you know, sure enough, the extractive industry folks have their, uh, you know, they're ready to jump. So I, I, I noticed I it was a Canadian mining firm that's looking at it, which I thought was interesting twist. It's all these like international mining companies all the time. It seems like they're all these, I, I don't know. It's like, it seems like every time you hear about some mining threat, it's like a Canadian company or a Chilean company or, you know, it, I mean, not to, I don't know why that is. It just seems like it's, it's often the case, but, um, 
you know, I'm, I'm sure that there will be legal challenges and efforts to, to halt that, at least pending the litigation on the legality of the monument reductions. So we'll see what happens there. Um, you know, I think that that's something that's kind of a challenge with, with hard rock mining is it's all governed by this 1872 mining law. And, you know, once they have a legitimate mining claim, it becomes basically like property right. And so, you know, even if, you know, a new administration were to come and restore the previous boundaries, if the reductions in the meantime were are found to be legal, then that would become like a compensatory taking and they would have to basically pay the mining company to leave. So, I mean, it just creates a, a big, you know, thorny nest of problems when you start tampering with these these protections that were really intended to be permanent. So it's, you know, we'll see how things play out there. So until, even though this is still in court, it's, it's, you can go ahead and, 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 and put your stake in the ground. It's unclear to me, to be honest. I mean, I think that, uh, you know, that would certainly be the claim of this administration. They would say that, you know, what we did is legal and binding and now it's open for business. Um, you know, I think that, there are, you know, other groups that, you know, obviously we feel that those reductions are not legal and, you know, it's going to be to the courts to determine what the outcome of that is. But what the sort of default setting in, in the, is in the meantime is, you know, dependent on the court, basically. It's like if they wanted to kind of enjoin this activity pending the determination of the legality of the reductions, you know, they, they could do that, but it, it would take a court to do it. So this kind of this this next article kind of goes in line with what you were saying about Zinke wanting to come back to Montana at some point, be governor and whatnot. You said this was part of a bigger piece. Now I didn't see that article, but this basically talks about how Halliburton is investing in a Ryan Zinke project in Whitefish. Is that is am I correct there? It was a little complicated for me as well, but there was a long Politico piece that came out two or three days ago sort of detailing this relationship between some of the higher-ups at Halliburton and this nonprofit that Zinke started in Whitefish where he has this, uh, you know, this piece of property that belongs to this nonprofit that he started that they're allegedly going to turn into some sort of park, but nothing has happened. And in the meantime, there are a bunch of investors who are trying to create some kind of like commercial development next to the um, next to the park. And there's some sort of agreement in principle that they're going to be able to use part of the park as a parking area. And Zinke is going to have some kind of preference to open some brewery in this commercial development. And the folks from Halliburton are all tied up in this effort. And it's... (laughs) You know, it's the the specifics of it were are sort of less important to me than, you know, just sort of confirming what we already know, which is that, you know, these guys, you know, Ryan Zinke, he's in bed with the fossil fuel industry. And, you know, I guess, you know, the saying you hear all the time is it's, you know, what's what's really shocking is not what goes on to it's, you know, all the illegal stuff that's going on in Washington, D.C. It's everything that goes on that's legal. And like, you know, maybe this is legal, maybe it's not. It, it seems like it's a little a little shady to me, but regardless, it's like, it, I mean, I think it's just confirming what we already know about this guy, which is that his, you know, his people who he's looking out for, who he's allied with, it's not us. It's the fossil fuel industry. So, you know, I mean, I was just thinking about it and, you know, you look back at Obama's last secretary of interior sally jewell she came from uh you know she was the ceo of rei when she left to become the um secretary of interior now she's back doing you know like a a lot of conservation work i saw her at outdoor retailer last year i mean she's you know still involved in protecting public lands in some capacity obama's secretary of interior before that was ken salazar i'm not sure what he's up to right now but the last time i saw him it was at a political action committee event raising money for conservation focused political candidates uh george w bush's last secretary of the interior left and immediately went to go work for royal dutch shell so it's like you know that's when you have a republican administration 
that's their orientation as far as public lands. It's like extractive industry. That's who those folks are allied with. And that's, that's kind of what you get. Well, well, I don't really know what to say about that. I kind of like, I'm just not surprised by any of that. So, <laughs> I mean, it's just everything that we've been talking about and now it's come to fruition. It's funny. We've been talking about this now for over a year. And so you can look back at our conversations and be like, well, I bet this is going to happen as soon as that goes down or as soon as those protections are lifted. And sure enough, it's coming to fruition. I don't know. What about some good news, Lewis? Um, good news. There's a, uh, a big public lands protection bill for Emory County, Utah. That's actually been introduced by John Curtis who replaced Jason Chaffetz in the house and believe it or not, we're in hatch and it's sort of a, uh, spills got a hearing today. It's, it's kind of a mixed bag. I mean, I think that some of the, the conservation groups are not thrilled with it because it does leave a lot of worthy places unprotected, but it, you know, protects a lot of new wilderness, new national conservation areas, some new wild and scenic rivers on, uh, I want to say the green. It, uh, like green Yampa, that zone or. Yeah, exactly. Um, and we're, you know, we're working with them to try and try and create some, some management principles in there to make sure that this all happens in a way that's sensitive of a bunch of really important climbing resources down there. And also that the wilderness boundaries are drawn in a way that, that, you know, protects existing and protective mountain perspective, mountain biking opportunities. So it's, it's kind of a mixed bag. I mean, it's not something that we're, you know, a hundred percent on board with just yet, but, uh, it's like positive development. It's good to see folks from Utah getting on board with some conservation proposals, even if it's not everything that, uh, you know, it's not the bill we would write necessarily, but it, it seems like it has the potential to do some positive things. So that's cool. So if it comes out of committee, then does it get, get put up for a, what happens after that? So it would be, this is just a hearing. So they'll just kind of talk about the bill and have witnesses speaking about it. And then the next thing after that would be a committee markup where they would potentially make amendments and actually vote the bill out of committee. And then it would move to the floor. Okay. So it's seriously so, being talked about right now. Yeah. It's still relatively early in the process, but it, uh, it's got a hearing today. So that's hopefully positive outdooralliance.org get on the email list you'll get some emails from lewis yeah we also had a cool uh you know at the north fork last week there was a cool event on tuesday night sort of like north fork weeks getting a little longer every year but uh it was a kind of a symposium about uh river protection at pit brewing in boise which was pretty cool event and it was cool for me to hear there were a bunch of folks from American Whitewater and Idaho Rivers United and Idaho Conservation League talking about this big uh, proposed gold mine, gold mine in the headwaters of the South Salmon, which is, again, I guess we're pivoting back to <laughs> bad news, but it was the event was really cool. And uh, it was really cool to, to learn more about um, about this gold mine threat in the South Salmon. It sounds like the uh, draft environmental impact statement is coming out this fall. So that'll be the next opportunity for folks to be engaged on that. But we'll, uh, I'm sure we'll talk about that more in the fall. Lesser spoke a bit about um, just talking about the early days of kind of Idaho river conservation and protecting the, the North fork, which was uh, in the crosshairs of hydropower developers. And it was just cool to hear the, the sort of early stories of river conservation out there so that was that's a cool event all right what do we what else we got on the list we got a law firm defends kayakers on the potomac do you know about these these cats <laughs> yeah that's that's adam van grack yeah what's the what's i don't know how we got this piece do you do you know anything about this i didn't see the story basically I'm, I'm it's the question it. posed is can the park service order a paddler off the flood of potomac it looks like this guy runs a blog. This law firm runs a blog, and this is one of their blog posts. Is talking about a, you know, it, the question Grace just mentioned, and you know, refers back to the incident <laughs> with uh, Billy Hearn, Eric Martin, and myself, and Davey subsequently. <laughs> yeah, and then, look at that. There's a picture of Andrew McEwen on the blog post. Yeah, Andrew McEwen, who will be on the Hammer Factor in a little bit. Yeah. Um, 
I, well, I'll tell you the I'll, I'll tell you the background behind this story behind this article, is that years ago I must have been mid nineties, right? The Potomac flooded to some ridiculous level, and Billy Hearn uh, and Eric Martin, Billy Hearn was you know brother with Davy Hearn and ran Viking Paddles among other things, and Eric Martin has W Wilderness Voyagers here in Ohio Power Rafting Company, but we put on the Potomac to go surf the wave at Little Falls, which is, you know, a big low head dam that's been filled in, but at really high water, it makes this glassy wave that's big enough to accommodate a slalom boat tip to tail. And the wave is, I don't know, how long would you say the wave is? A quarter mile long? Something you like mean, that? You mean wide? Yeah, yeah, quarter mile wide. It goes from, it goes on forever. And you surf back and forth in this thing. And so we, it, the river was high enough that they had closed down the, the, uh, the parkway right next to the river there by the wave. And we were out surfing and these cop cars had started pulling up along the bank and kind of, kind of, uh, uh, you know, gathering. They were watching us, and finally one of them gets on a loud, like on a bullhorn, and starts ordering us off the wave. And we're, you know, several hundred yards from the bank, and we're looking at each other like, "No, I don't think we're going to do that." <laughs> and I remember thinking at the time, like, "I'm." not doing what the police are telling me to do but at the same time i'm like what are they going to do right <laughs> earlier that day we had told davy hearn uh we were going to go out and go surfing there and so he wasn't ready to go at the time but he was getting ready so while this is going on davy's upstream putting on at little falls creek and coming out of the water you know and so meanwhile the cops are getting more and more agitated with us and they're starting to scream and then <laughs> i can just it, it a i can just make <laughs> sure you surfing. guys like paddle twirling and like woohoo like cross well, now we're just surfing in this wave next to each other this goes on for like 10 minutes and now the police are like get off the wave report to the <laughs> bank immediately and now there's a helicopter above our head and the helicopter has a bullhorn yelling basically the same thing and we're kind of having a little confab out there on the way figuring out what we're going to do <laughs> and so after a bit we decide we're going to peel out and we're going to go hide in one of the islands downstream right so we peel out and, and that's what we do we actually go and hide and the helicopter has to go refuel or something and we climb up into an island and bury ourselves in leaves um, <laughs> and cover our boats up so the helicopter can't it's like november so there's no leaves in the trees so meanwhile davy hearn had floated down and started surfing the wave and now the cops are like a beehive they are very agitated, <laughs> right? Davy, who is, you know, Mr. Upright Citizens out there in the wave, they're like, get in here immediately. And he surfs over. They proceed to drag him out of the boat and, like, basically get him in a neck hold. And there's video of this. And I don't know if they, like, hit, they're hitting him with, a, like, a billy club, but it's forcibly removing him from the boat. And they, you know, they're, like, dragging him up the bank like six cops. And Davey's like, what the hell's going on? And then they, uh, they threw in a cop car. They charged me to go to court. Meanwhile, Eric and Billy and I are hiding in this island, and the helicopter's looking for us for, like, an hour, circling back and forth. And finally, it disappears, and we make a sprint for the bank. Um, it involves some more running from the cops. But... Uh, the question this law firm is asking is, is whether, you know, the Park Service was able to, you know, legally able to do that. Well, I thought well, I, don't, I, don't that. I thought what was interesting that the river is controlled by Maryland, and when they pulled, the when they pulled Davy Davy right no Billy yeah Davy Hearn Davy Davy yeah. when they pulled Davy out, they had the authority to because he was trespassing on a closed but they on a, on on closed property. But all the charges were dropped because they lured him on to the closed property before they beat him up. So it, it was all a wash. The there was there was like the par it's the park police and then the forest, the the national forest service. It was like two different conflicting. I think the uh, issue was also that they had the authority to close the land, but not the river. And Davy had put in on Cabin John Creek and paddled yeah, that's, in that's instead of putting in on park service land. Yeah, yeah. So Good he got off thing. the hook. But yeah. it was like I, I believe it was on the front page of the Washington Post. Sure was. It was, it was yeah. like <laughs> yeah. it was like like Olympian dragged from river or something like that. Yeah. I mean, it was like <laughs> oh, I remember yeah, it was that. A thing. It was quite a deal. Yeah. <laughs> oh, that's a good one. Um, we got another topic of discussion here. This is kind of about race organizing. I believe this started with you ranting a little bit about Calhoun getting on to you about some stuff at some events. Weld. Yeah, Calhoun. 
okay, Calhoun, to his credit, it not only is a very passionate racer and takes his stuff very seriously, which you have to appreciate, but also following the podcast, he did write me and say, you know, he was like, yeah, you know, I, I think you have a point. But if you recall, the, the thing was, is I was Calhoun has sort of been calling race organizers and and you know really trying to micromanage the uh the organization of the races as it pertains to boat classes and stuff like that and a lot of these race organizers and we actually got a letter from a race organizer to to that basically agreed with us but these guys are strung out man it's, it's a thankless job putting together a race uh and then you know you rarely get a thanks but you always get complainers people coming up and complain, saying something you know the timing was wrong or the shirts were bad or you name it you know there's some bitch about it um but Calhoun did write back. I, Calhoun seems to seem to imply that he was interested in pursuing this idea of making a third-party race standard website or some online tool where, where there could be a, a standard that race organizers could use to take that question out of people's organizers' things to worry about because I think that would be very well, very much appreciated. But that was the, the long and short of that. Yeah, I like this, this email comes in and. It's got basically three points, and uh, you know this is a, a fellow race organizer, and I'll read these off. Number one, if the words you should appear in your statement, just keep it to yourself. Number two, be the change you want to see if you're willing to make a contribution. If you aren't willing to make a contribution, then why should anyone do it for you? Number three, contact the organizers after the event is over. And to me, that's the key one as an event organizer is... Everything can be worked out, but like just because the race is over, there's a lot more going on. So, I think it was Alex Barham that that wrote that. That was email. Alex. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Thanks for that, Alex. But you know, I mean, I see both sides of it. You know, when you're wound up, you're racing, you put in some time, it's all on the line. Something happens, you feel cheated. But I don't think we should throw Jeff under the. I don't think that was what Jeff was doing there. I mean, I think Jeff was trying to be helpful. Oh yeah. Oh yeah, for sure. Jeff's trying to be helpful for sure, but yeah, I, I, yeah, I think. But the whole, I think the whole issue has been settled. I don't think there's anything. Should we get in? We have a ton of listener mail, so we gotta just bang through a few of these. Do you want to jump in? Do we want to do some five questions in thirty seconds? We do have five questions in thirty seconds. We we managed to put one of those together as this the show. So I answered. John, you've answered. Yeah, Geltman, you're up. Geltman, you're up. All right, you ready? I'll, I'll ask. Geltman and you answer. And for those of you who are new to the segment, it's five questions. Geltman has 30 seconds to answer them, although it rarely takes just 30 seconds. Um, four of these questions came from our serial questioner, Fernando Fernando Ayuso. I think that's he's from Spain. That's the way I would say it. Yeah. Yeah. When he writes, he 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 goes big. He's a binge writer. He's a binge writer. <laughs> Thank well, you. Let me know when you're ready because I'll hit start on my stopwatch here. Gel- Geltman, you ready? Ready. Okay, this one's from Fernando. Is sweet the best helmet? As far as I know. Second one's from Fernando. Full face or not full face? Not full face. Number three, Fernando. What is the ratio of pro kayakers coming from wealthy families? I don't know, but it helps. We need a ratio. Take your best guess. One wealthy to every five regular, two wealthy to every three. What's what's wealthy? You know. Parents giving like, them money to, they don't like have your to parents will, will make sure that you never have to work ever again. Right. Nah, uh, not that much. But there parents, parents who are wealthy enough to entertain your idea of sort of not doing anything with paddling for five to six years outside of high school and or college. <laughs> I think in a lot of ways, if you didn't come from wealthy parents, it wouldn't really change the odds there. But it's certainly a nice, we you know, like if you're going to. Yeah, I don't know, dude. I don't know. I have no idea. <sighs> Pass. All right, number four from Fernando is counting the number of, the number of rivers that you have run. Is that a thing that people do, or just him and his weird friends? Uh, I know people who do that. I do not do that. All right, last one comes from Kirk Edelman down there in the new car top tents. Is this no. consumption at its very worst, or an idea that has some legs? No, no car top tents. Okay, boom. Minute and four seconds. Not bad. These were easy questions. That's the closest we've come to they, actually hitting a uh, thirty seconds. They're not easy. What do you mean easy? Minus, you, you minus couldn't answer wealthy. one of them. Well, it's that's complicated because it's like here's the thing: anybody can be a dirtbag. It's not hard, but it's a lot easier to be a dirtbag when you know that if you 
you know, suddenly find yourself without health insurance and something cataclysmic happens that your parents are going to help you. It's like just living on somebody's couch and having no money. Like anybody can do that. But doing that with a margin of safety requires wealthy parents. And so I don't know how people are balancing that. Okay. How about this? Of the age 21 to 25. Now let's say 18 to 25. What is the ratio of paddlers who whose parents are buying their gear for them? Or or let's just say uh, subsidizing their lifestyle to some extent. Mm, 50-50. One out of two. Okay. There you go. That's, that's, what, that's what I want to know. That's what is that so hard? Aiden, my kid, and I had a very in-depth discussion about dirtbag royalty a few weeks ago. <laughs> he was asking what dirtbag royalty was, and I, I was kind of put on the spot. But I think I came up with a reasonable answer because there's a difference between being a dirtbag and being dirtbag royalty. Yeah, play it on me. I think dirtbag royalty is when you're – and the thing that people that came to mind would be like if you're, if you're living the dirtbag life, but you're also achieving really huge goals. Like you're, you're doing the, the big whitewater runs, multi-day, you know, multi-trips down the Stikini, you know, you know, multiple trips down the Stikini in a day. You're writing articles. You're publishing stuff. You're part of the community, but you're hanging out there and really involved with the sport. That's dirtbag royalty. Suppose just a dirt bag is just kind of, you know, not a mooch, but just existing. So were you guys like contemplating the positives and negatives of each category or? Well, to be honest, he was, he seems to idolize dirt bag royalty. So I was trying to put a positive spin on it. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Moving on. Where did the hate mail from Doc Rocco come from? Who wrote that? That's a good question. So this mail comes at us, and basically Doc Rocco came on the show, talked about Lyme's disease, pretty much said if chronic Lyme's disease was not a thing, all you got to do is get around to doxycycline, and you're fine. Quit whining. And this, well, that was what was, Weld wanted him to say, and I don't. He didn't that was really not say, what Doc Rocco said. Well, yeah. yeah, I guess you're right. Doc, I actually showed Doc Rocco this. So this guy wrote in, and he he expressed exactly what I thought we would have people express about Doc Rocco was that that there is a sort of medical establishment who's not recognized as a serious problem that that affects affects a lot of people, and Doc Rocco needs to get off his high horse, and the infectious disease society of America is full of shit. Blah, blah, blah. And I showed Doc Rocco this, and he seemed un- not only unfazed by it, but seemed very familiar with this. And he re- reiterated to me in a different way that what he'd been, con- I think the point he was trying to make on the podcast was that the people who have chronic, who claim to have chronic Lyme disease, is a gigantic group of people who are not linked by any single group of symptoms. There are people that have anything from fatigue to arthritic type symptoms to headaches to brain cloud to, you know, debilitating illness. There's no connection to any of these. And he's like, as a, as a scientist, I do science, you know, there has to be peer reviewed science here from the, from the, from the gigantic morass of chronic Lyme sufferers, because there's so many, the science just isn't there. And he's like, I don't know what to tell you. So that's, that's just the bottom line. Email was very passionate. Had some good points in there, you know, and, uh, I don't know. I'm, I'm not a doctor with it, but I, I debated we should have Doc Rocco on, but at the same time, like, do we really need to feed this? I think that's not our show. Moving on here, this uh, this this is directed at you, Weld. This comes from Rob Taylor. Rob says, right. "Dang, Weld just went there. There are a lot of Jehovah Witnesses that are become paddlers or are slash became paddlers. I think of a lot of us ended up on the river by being overwhelmed kids." While you were deciding on your next bikes, we were approaching strangers about things we couldn't possibly understand. We had to find the river out of necessity. You don't know us. Check yourself. Yeah, so it took me a second to kind of catch on to what this was all about. I remember when Snowy came on and they were talking about him being a... Oh, I remember. Oh, and I went ahead and said, you- he's like a Jehovah's Witness. Right, so yeah, here's the thing, right? Rob Taylor sits here and he's laughing. We're making fun of SUPers. He's laughing. We're making fun of close grippers. He's laughing. We're making fun of the low offsetters. And all of a sudden, we start making fun of his crowd. And then he's like, "Whoa, whoa, whoa!" Well, uh, 
Everyone knows ah. this is the hammer factor. And you could say <laughs> it's apples and oranges, but I'm telling you, when you decide that a zero degree offset makes sense in defiance of any science, that just as the same leap of faith as any religion, as far as I'm concerned. <laughs> Oh, Nathan Woodburn writes yeah. in with some good links. I mean, what do you think about no, that, wait, wait. Louis? Get, Louis, yeah, yeah, get, get, we got to get you in on this because, like, you're getting ready. Yeah, you seem to you be know, this West Virginia. West Virginia is getting ready to meet Hood River here. How is this union going to happen? I'm going to stay out of this. Oh, my <laughs> really? God. That's it? Come on, we're counselor. Gonna, let's we're going to do, do a whole Lewis cut here because. As soon uh, as we get okay. off the air, Lewis is going to have plenty to say about uh, this, unfortunately. Exactly, exactly. I've... Well, please the fifth. All right. Pack Rafters, a good one from Nathan Woodward about Pack Rafters. Um, not much to say there. Some cool video links. I'll put those in the show notes. Oh, here we go. This is another one to you, Weld. In episode 50, uh, this comes from uh, Nelson. Josh Nelson? Is that a Josh? No, no, Nelson Oldham. Nelson Oldham. Nelson says... Yeah. Uh, Trivia. No, no. <laughs> All right. <laughs> I'm glad I don't have to do that anymore. You guys just take it over. Nelson are flashing like gang signs right now. In episode 50, during Weld's rant about plastic boat weight, he mentioned he has only broken one boat in his life. What make and model was that boat? Bonus, on which rapid did the incident take place? I had to think about this one, too. No one's going to know this. I broke it on the – this would be the – you know the flood channel, that little channel in the Great Falls? On the left, river left? Yeah, yeah. it's like – you know what I'm talking about, Calvin. I had the first descent on that, and I broke my Hydra Mustang. <laughs> the bottom <laughs> drop. It blew the thing right in half. It literally broke my boat in half, and it broke my paddle. I still rolled up, though. <laughs> That's a solid first descent, man. It's a little gnarly section. That was a little gnarly, yeah. It was, it was uh, less than optimal, too. <laughs> Those guys – the the DC boys are calling that the action channel now because it uh you know like they call five feet on the Potomac gauge like if you look at the the USGS gauge it says action level is five feet and that's the <laughs> that's the level you want for for the action channel yeah all right uh, moving on here let's stay with the weld yeah. theme while we're at it Nelson um, Nelson was there by the way that day and at the, he I think he decided a portage after my uh, misadventure out there but didn't sell it oh uh, he was trying to catch you on one there weld. um here's another one directed at weld here's the first part of my question when you examine roi on sponsoring kayakers with free gear is it worth it or is it unquantifiable second part are pro pro forms good or bad for increasing sales all right this came from tim kennedy our boat review guy not the anonymous boat review guy but the completely i thought lewis was the anonymous boat review guy but we're going to get to that. Okay, we'll get to that. And I, and you, you've blown his identity. This is a good question, man. I'll tell you, sponsoring athletes, I've been doing this for 20 years or 20 plus years now. I have no idea if sponsoring athletes makes any sense or not. I just don't know. I, have, I don't. I, 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 every day I, I facilitate or vacillate, whatever. I, my mind changes on that subject and nrs right now is on a tear sponsoring athletes and i'm always wondering if they're doing the right thing or not so i don't know the second part the pro forms question very very good question for those people in the industry and this is something if you're in the industry you should be thinking about this too because pro forms you don't know and everybody's listening to this podcast i'm sure knows this is that if you have some kind of in in the industry and particularly the outdoor industry you can apply for a pro form which means you get gear at half price or some big reduction off of retail, right? So you have Patagonia and companies like Patagonia and Prana, among others, who publish a print pro deal catalog and mail these things out on a monthly basis, right? That's how serious they're taking pro deals, right? And so the pro deal, you know, for your manufacturer, you're thinking pro deal customers pay about the same thing as most retailers do, except you get paid at net zero because it was a credit card. And the terms of shipping are much better and terms of return are much better than you do with a retailer. So there's a lot of outdoor manufacturers who have lashed onto this thing and recognize that it's a serious, serious piece of income. And, you know, of course, who pays the price for this is, of course, retailers. Um, and it is part of a transition where basically, you know, the, the idea of a middleman like a retailer is getting squashed. Um, so... 
uh, it's something that as an industry, we have no answer to and no one's really thinking. I mean, I'm sure we're thinking of the consequences, but no one's really doing anything about it. I don't know what's going to come of this, but it's a, it's a thing for sure. <laughs> yeah. So you could say, manufacturers will say, oh, we're doing it. This is a form of advertising, promoting our brand, but that's a lie. They're doing it because it's quick, easy money. There you go. See that answer, Lewis? Boom. Definitive. Just think about that. <laughs> this comes at us from Anonymous. This is a good one here. This is a really good one. And man, we could do a whole show on this. Lewis, we should do a whole show on this sometime. You should lead this show up because this would be super interesting. Um, greetings. Big thanks to the boys. Blah, blah, blah. Um, loves Lewis's segment. He brings up a question. Why the hunting and fishing and kayak communities do not work together more productively and more often and move visibly to make such areas more accessible to both <clears throat> the gated well, along- it, to be clear he's talking about the, he's talking about timber companies and gated properties around portland in this particular case yeah okay so basically there's locked roads access and whatnot and he's saying why don't hunting the hunting and fishing crowd and the kayak communities get together more often to increase access to these areas it's good for both of them i think it's a great question yeah, I mean, I guess there's two questions here, right? There's one is <clears throat> working together more closely with the hunting and angling community. And that is something that we do quite a bit of at Outdoor Alliance. We actually sort of modeled ourselves in a way off of the Teddy Roosevelt Conservation Partnership, which is a coalition of the uh, national organizations like the sport or the species specific conservation groups. So like the National Turkey federation or whatever like all of these different sort of niche hunting groups and they work together on on conservation issues and we work pretty closely with uh backcountry hunters and anglers as well those two groups they both do a ton of good work i think that we you know we speak to sort of culturally distinct communities so i think that we don't necessarily do as much public facing work together but we do communicate with them a lot and, you know, try to support each other's efforts where we can. Um, you know, those folks especially are able to make inroads with conservative lawmakers in a way that the traditional conservation groups have a hard time with. Uh, just because, you know, like I think that hunting and fishing have, you know, that... Uh, those traditions or whatever you want to call them, you know, that just has more resonance with, with lawmakers representing rural areas or whatever. And those guys do a ton of good work. So we do work together. Um, as far as the, the timber company access stuff, um, the guy who wrote in is talking a lot, you know, out here in the Northwest, there are huge, huge swaths of, uh, lands that are owned by the, the big timber companies like Weyerhaeuser and SDS is a big one out here in the gorge. Um, you know, I, I guess personally, I don't work as much on the local access issues, but I think that idea of working together more closely with the hunting and fishing groups on access issues makes a ton of sense. And so uh, when I move out there and a bunch of lands owned by SDS, you know, I'm going to hike up a creek or something. It's all owned by SDS. Do they? Does that someplace I just can't go, or can I sneak on there and no one's going to know about it? Or how does that work out? I have not, you know, like here in the gorge, I haven't seen any access issues at all. There's, um, there's law, there's for sure a law in Washington. I think there's one in Oregon as well that indemnifies private land holders if they open up their property for recreation access. So basically like, you know, the timber companies, they don't incur any liability for letting people go recreate on, on their land. Like the, uh, access point for the green trust is on SDS land. Um, there are some bike trails around here that are also on private land and sometimes some of them get closed kind of in like the height of fire season because they're worried about people going in there and, and potentially starting a fire. Um, in other places in the Northwest access is more of a problem. Like, uh, Hancock lumber owns a bunch of the access to Ernie's up uh, on the North Fork snow quality outside bend and dealing with those guys has been like a constant headache. Like they gate the road. They try and charge people for driving access. They try and charge people for walking access. And, you know, I know down, you know, South of Portland, there are other places that experience the same kinds of problems. And I, you know, I think that working together with the, the hunting and fishing community to try and open up access to some of those places is a really good idea. Yeah. I think there's a lot of 
mutual things that can go on between those two groups. <clears throat> and you're right. I mean, it's a totally broad spectrum of of people in power that they can speak to. Mm-hmm. Um, moving on here, we've got some great emails coming in about the strategic outburst reserve. We've got some people who are buying outbursts. They love them. They're giving them good, positive reviews. Um, we've got Steven Formosa wants to do an interview, wants you guys to interview me sometime. That's a good email, but we're running. We got some first descents in the Southeast with Ryan McAvoy. But we don't have time to get to all these. But there are two emails, two things on here I really would like to talk about. So one of them is Soul Waterman uh, leaves U.S. production because of the tariffs. And the tariffs in Europe, uh, this one's directed at Weld about how that's affecting your business. Are you guys fine getting into those after we interview Andrew and Aniel? Let's do that. I was thinking about that question this morning, too, and I, we really should follow through on getting someone on from Outdoor Industry Association to talk about the trade stuff. Yeah. I, mean, I could tell I you how like... it's affecting, affecting us or how it's affecting our, our side of the industry. Yeah, And I've talked to a few other people within the interest, industry, and it's pretty interesting. Um, are you guys up for talking about that? I think we should talk about that. But right now we got to get into Andrew and Annie or we're going to lose them. Yeah, um, let's call Andrew. Man, we're pretty close to on time. This is where we blow it right here. Yeah, here we go. Next hour, we're going to be talking about Valley Mill. Right. <laughs> you guys are going to plastic be beating yourselves. Bright your orange, <laughs> bright orange plastic kayaks that reek of urine. <laughs> the yeah, wall sucks. Is uh, this is the Hammer Factor? Is Andrew McHugh in there? One moment. <laughs> <laughs> Nice one, Grace. <laughs> <laughs> Whose number are we calling? The, are we calling him at work? Hello, this is Andrew. Hey, Andrew. Yeah, yeah. Hey, hey Andrew, this Hi. is uh, John Grace from The Hammer Factor. You're on with Lewis Geltman and John Weld. Excellent. Hey, how's it going? What's up? <laughs> good, good, good. I want to start off by saying uh, thanks for coming on the show and a big Valley Moo. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah. So real quick, real quick, Andrew, before we get into here, um, I want to introduce you as a uh, under the radar style Jedi Valley Mill cult member and uh, I don't know, Wildwater National Champion many times over. Um, is there anything I missed there that you'd like to add? Uh, no, that's that's nice. That's very flattering. <laughs> so you're doing this wrong grace because if you if you want to get andrew to talk about anything you can't just ask him to chime in about anything that's going to like make him you know portray him in a positive light you have to drag those details out of him okay 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 <laughs> well you guys jump in here and drag feel free um where are you at right now andrew i'm at work <laughs> i love it where do you work i work at uh an engineering firm in dc Okay. So it's like an office job, which uh, has been pretty critical in my <laughs> recovery over the past week. It's been like so nice to just like sit on my chair in the air- AC and <laughs> you know work at the computer. <laughs> well, well, one of the the reason, the prime reason we we brought you on this show is that you just recently won the Texas Water Safari. In um, on the San Marcos River in Texas, it's a 260 mile race. Um, you won the solo division with a time of 47 minutes and nine seconds. They have um, group 47 hours only. 40, 47, <laughs> 47 hours, huge, huge mess up there. Huge, 47 hours and nine minutes, fifth overall with the teams and the group boats. What is the Texas Water Safari, and why did you do this? Yeah, so uh, it is a race from the source of the San Marcos uh, on a, a little lake uh, at the source of the San Marcos, and it starts on this tiny little river, uh, and it follows the whole San Marcos uh, into the Guadalupe River and then goes all the way to the coast from there. So it's 260-some miles, kind of depending on how lost you get in the log jams. Uh, and it's been going on since the 1960s, so it has a lot of interesting history to it. And uh, it's uh, not really much of a whitewater race, but there, you know, it's a downriver race. Uh, 
for the most part, except for the last few miles, which are across the bay. Uh, and the reason I did it is, uh, I guess there are a lot of reasons, but uh, it's kind of been on my mind for a long time. I had a friend uh, who did it uh, back in the day and did really well uh, and actually like set the course record, a guy named Carter Johnson. And uh, and then the ne- came back into the next year and tried to do it in a two-person boat, and I think they like destroyed the boat in you know the first day and had to pull out. So I felt like that you know range of experience was kind of appealing. Uh, and uh, you know the whole idea of like going from source to sea is always a pretty appealing thing too. But this is, I mean, this is a a notoriously awful race. I mean, if you know anything about this race, you know that it's just awful. I mean, that's obviously the attraction to a lot of people that it's, it's about as bad as it gets. I mean, it's hot. You have to bring snake bite kits. You're going to get probably attacked by an alligator at some point. It just goes, the problems go on and on and on, right? Yeah, that's true. I I, kind of don't, uh, I don't really think of it like that, though. I don't, you know, like I'm not really such a masochist that I do it for, uh, for that i kind of it's it's just intriguing to me uh you know both you know because it's like a source to see thing and also you know just like the uncertainty like i had no i've never done anything like this and i had no idea what was going to happen and you know like when i would try to you know sort of visualize a race like this i would uh, i was you know trying to compare it to other things i've done and uh and you know sometimes at the end of visualizing i would be you know done in like 40 hours and you know win the race and other times i would end up you know being losing a leg to an alligator or something like that so it was totally (laughs) you know i had that like appeal of just like complete uncertainty so what's the are you allowed to just are you do you just raise one boat or can you switch boats mid mid race you cannot switch boats. The only thing that you can get is uh, like food and water from your team captain. My team captain was my sister, Ashley, who came out. and uh, mm. She can meet you kind of anywhere on the course. She has to be at certain checkpoints. There are about 10 checkpoints down the river that you have to make you know, cutoff time at, at each one. Uh, and so that's the only thing you get. You can't get a boat or any repair material or anything. You have to bring anything you think you'll need on the boat. So what's, what's the boat of choice? So I raced a um, like a 21 foot racing sea kayak, which I thought worked pretty well. Mm-hmm. Uh, it, you know, it's it has a kick up rudder and it's fast and it maneuvers as much as you need it to maneuver and uh, and it's really good in the bay at the end. Unfortunately, that was only you know <laughs> a little fraction of the race. So that's what I raced, but uh, it's really pretty interesting when you go down there because they have all of these uh, Texas evolved boats and the coolest ones are these um these like six man sort of canoe type things that are like 40 feet long and made out of carbon and uh just like kind of unlike anything you've ever seen and have these you know huge rudders in the back because the river is you know a pretty tight little river to you know get a 40 foot boat down uh yeah <laughs> i'm just trying to picture that so, so oh, sorry well no, you're paddling for 47 hours. Is that straight, or do you do you stop and rest? I mean, do you stop, take a, you know, sleep for a bit, or what's what's the strategy there? Uh, so I think uh, we, the, like I didn't, and people in front of me did not sleep at all. I think that if you're going much slower, you've got to stop and sleep. And and I mean, in fact, I sort of found myself nodding off much of the second uh, night. But, were you uh, paddling while you were falling asleep? Like, where did your yeah. arms keep moving? That's awesome. Yeah, yeah. It was a little <laughs> bizarre. You can live. You know, the you... second night, I was kind of hoping the second night would be short, but I really, I was not fast enough, and I had to paddle, you know, all the way through the second night. Right. Did the you whole see second night was just a dream. You know, I was yeah. having, it was just not real. <laughs> like, nothing, I, you know, I was seeing all these things. You know, you're paddling uh, kind of, uh, a really tight little river and you know the trees hanging over and all these trees were something else and uh, <laughs> it was it was pretty bizarre and a couple times like i would just wake up you know and like 
I thought I was done with this race, but here I am. My arms are still moving. <laughs> it's not over. You can literally paddle in your sleep. I love that. <laughs> yeah. So 260 miles in 47 hours is kind of slow. I mean, you know, like not not. I mean, you won the race, so obviously it's fast for the race. But that's five miles an hour. That seems kind of slow on moving water. Was there a lot of portaging? You talk about these trees. What what were you faced with? Were you just in your boat floating the whole time, or were you having to get out a bunch? Or the uh, upper river has quite a few portages. You have to portage over around a couple of dams and uh, a, a number of dams, and then. Um, you know, there are definitely some logs that you have to portage over over the course of the race. And then towards the end, there's this sort of epic log jam that you have to navigate through, which was definitely challenging because uh, I got there at night on the second night and I was not with it enough to to, uh, to handle myself. And so I kind of paddled around in circles for a while down there. Uh, but I agree, you're right. It's not really that fast. And, you know, the it was a pretty low water year, and I think that that is definitely a factor. I mean, usually the times are much faster. But also, I mean, I guess, you know, just trying to paddle that far, you can't, you know, your intensity obviously suffers. Yeah, goes to zero. This log jam you're talking about, is it like where the river is meeting a lake and there's a bunch of, like, windblown logs backed up or Give me just a visual. I'm trying to picture it. Yeah, so it's down towards the end of the river, right near the end of the race, and uh, it's, it's kind of swampy down there, and the river's formed all these channels. And the, uh, you know, I don't even know where all these logs come from. Like, I didn't see that many trees in Texas, but they, like, all fall into the river and end up in this one spot somehow. Uh, and so, you know, people have kind of figure out, figured out where to do it. I mean, I guess it changes from month to month but uh but when you go down there you can kind of see where people have gotten out of their boats and you know you can kind of figure it out but it is it is pretty confusing and there are definitely stories of people you know spending like six or eight hours just kind of going oh. in circles down there <laughs> uh, which luckily didn't happen but i did i mean was it I just did, luck that, that that didn't happen to you or i mean or did you i mean what was your i think what was your strategy you know, it helped that it was a low water year and uh all there weren't like you know i think when it's high all those channels open up and you can just like you know paddle forever but uh i did start paddling i i sort of went down this channel did a little portage went down this channel and got back to the river and i put that in quotes because it's just like this it's tiny you know i couldn't even really tell that it was the river that i was i was paddling on and i turned the wrong way because there's not really any current there (laughs) so i paddled all the way up to the bottom of the log jam and then i sort of realized that you know i I actually didn't even realize then that i was on the river i thought that i had just paddled in this huge circle from the portage i had done and it was like this horror movie moment where i thought that you know i was just like i found like some passion to hades and i was gonna have to paddle for eternity in the swamp <laughs> and, you know it wasn't like that wouldn't have been like the weirdest thing that happened that night <laughs> like it wasn't out of the realm of possibility so what was the worst like where was what was the lowest point like what was the t- where is it you're just this is it i i i'm this is a, a terrible decision i made was there anything like that or <laughs> yeah definitely on the, on the first night actually um yeah, there's like definitely a, a number of low points, but on the first night it was I uh, I bonked, you know, I ran out of glycogen, and uh, the problem was I just wasn't really eating, and you know I had sort of you know parceled out a certain amount of food to eat, and I just like couldn't really get myself to do it, and uh, and so I, I ran out of glycogen, and I had to I had to just like pull over and stop, and I was in third place at the time. And I was, you know, feeling really good about myself. And then that happened. I just had to stop and kind of, if you've ever had that happen, you just, you can't stay warm and you can't like, you know, you get out of breath. So it was just kind of like wheezing and uh, shivering on the side of the river for a little while. And to give you an idea of like how low point that was, I was, there was this like baseball sized rock, like kind of like in my spine. And <laughs> I kept thinking, you know, like, this would be much better if I moved that rock, but I, <laughs> I, I never did. 
<laughs> You're like, that's fine. That rock is fine. <laughs> what about like blisters and all that kind of stuff? Were you all just, you know, blistered up? Yeah, to some extent. I wore gloves, which is kind of a weird thing for me, but uh, that definitely helped. I put, you know, desitin, which I know John and John are probably familiar with, but uh, it's, uh, you know, like baby diaper rash cream. I put that on my hands to keep them dry and uh, just put them in gloves, and it actually worked fine. My hips got kind of shredded by the seat after a while. Uh, but, yeah, I don't know. I feel like I came out all right, just, you know, tired. Hmm. So would you do it again? And if you did it again, what would you dif- what would you do differently? Like what would be the, the, the thing that you would do differently or things? Yeah, yeah. I, I think I would, yeah. Uh, I was not thinking that I would when I was doing it, but now that I have a little distance, uh, it was it was really cool. You know, the river was cool. Um, the community down there was like really cool. I thought, you know, they they put on just an awesome race. You know, it's like really well organized and uh, people are very friendly. Like when I got to the finish line, one of the other racers like jumped in the water in his clothes and pulled my boat out because <laughs> I was like. You know, I don't know. Well spent. Obviously incapable of doing it. You know, that's like not something that happens at most races I've been to. Like at the end of the RPOC race, you're not, <laughs> you're not paralyzed with fatigue. Rumor has. Yeah, um, Go ahead. I'm sorry. Yeah, but I guess in terms of what I do better, uh, I think that the I really would need to figure out eating I, I just wasn't savvy you know what to do i had like cliff bars and i just could not like i would just take a bite of cliff bar and kind of like chew it for 10 minutes and it just sort of like change shape and it wouldn't <laughs> digest at all yeah. i'm doing a big bike race on saturday and it's like a six or seven hour bike race and eating is a huge issue because you get halfway through and you have to keep eating or you're gonna bonk but nothing is palatable yeah so. Well, rumor has it that uh, Calhoun wants to go down there and go head-to-head with you. <laughs> Man, maybe we should team up in that case. <laughs> I'm just kidding. But the thing about Calhoun, despite the general badassness, is that I just can't imagine him staying up that late. <laughs> <laughs> so shots been fired over Calhoun's bow on that one. <laughs> Texas Water Safari, I had never heard of it. I guess Well had heard of it and knew all about it. Lewis, had you heard of that, of the Texas Water Safari before? Just from Andrew. <laughs> Nelson, the guy who wrote that email of me breaking my boat, he he was big into the, the flat water scene for a while, and that was something he wanted to do, and he was trying to catch my ear about it, but it never, never panned out. If you went back, would you take the same boat? I think so, yeah. It was, a, it was, it was really fun. It was just, you know, plenty, plenty fast. Why not one of those epic water, those wave ski things? Surfski. Yeah, Surfski. Uh, this boot basically was a Surfski. I mean, it's, it's a lot like a Surfski with a deck. And I'm, I'm not really crazy about the way you just, like, sit in a puddle of water in a Surfski. You know, I, yeah. I can't really picture doing that for two days. Right. Uh, <laughs> but I, people did race Surfskis, and I think that's definitely a good option. Is this a big race? Are there, like, a ton of racers? Yeah, it was big. There were 140-some boats that entered it. And uh, most of those are team boats. Most of them are, probably most of them are, you know, like open canoes. Uh, so, I mean, that's like, yeah, it's pretty big. Wow. And uh, I think only like, I don't know, 60% of people will finish. You know, there's a, a lot that can go wrong, 260 miles. Yeah, yeah. for sure. Well, I wasn't picturing like 25 guys out there. <laughs> yeah, that's, that's a big event. Yeah, I'm telling you, Texans, uh, they don't mess around. (laughs) (laughs) Well, Andrew, do you have anything else that you'd like to uh, tell us about the Texas Water Safari or anything you'd like our audience to know or what you're up to or anything like that? Uh, You know, I think that uh, the only thing is that I think, you know, there are people that sort of hear about this race and uh, are just – you know, aghast at the idea. And all those people who hear it and are just like immediately intrigued. And, uh, you know, I think if you're one of those latter people, I would suggest, uh, you know, definitely like looking into it and asking people who, uh, have done it, you know, on, there's a couple sort of forums on the 
on Facebook that uh, are like really supportive. And uh, yeah, go do it. It's, it's definitely worth it. I'm kind of interested. Some kind of weird way. <laughs> what length paddle and offset did you have? Uh, I'm sorry. What length paddle and what offset did you have? Oh, oh. Um, <laughs> offset. Yeah, <laughs> I. Uh, it's a 208, and it's like 45 ish. 45. All right, ish. that's acceptable. Okay. <clears throat> that's, that's, that's fair enough. Yeah, I thought that. I thought I was in for it. No, it's good. Pass. <clears throat> what were the people like down there? Was it like, it, just like looking at all the pictures? I seemed like there was, you know, some guys like you who were, you know, kind of on a mission, and then also maybe a pretty good chunk of. Texas good old boys kind of out on a lark. <laughs> yeah, I think that that sums it up. Uh, <laughs> a lot of people who are, are not experienced racers at all, you know, and like there are a lot of people who, you know, like fish from the canoe and they're like, they hear about this and in Texas, good Texas fashion, they, you know, just sign up for it and, uh, and do it or at least enter, start it. Uh, but yeah, there's definitely like a real competitive contingent too, and uh, most of them race the the six man boats. There were two six man boats that were just like blisteringly fast this year, and hmm. they were competing with each other. I, it's like kind of blows my mind that they were competing so intensely for such a long time. It sounds, you know, so exhausting. But those guys finished uh, about. 13 hours before I did or something like that. Wow. It's pretty amazing. Yeah, like they just, you know, were on it the whole time. And especially considering the low water year, I think they, it, it seems like they went really fast. Uh, and it's cool, you know, like they're, they really, you know, treat it very seriously. They're, uh, I mean, both like the logistics of, you know, getting, you know, getting the boat together and outfitting it and getting all the food and all that, that stuff is, you know, it takes a lot of time, and also they've, you know, clearly been training. Wow. And did those guys – I saw that the first two boats finished just, like, a couple minutes apart after 30-some yeah. hours. It was pretty amazing. Yeah. yeah, it was pretty cool. I guess the uh, the first boat uh, was ahead the whole time, and they had, like, a pretty good chunk of time, like maybe almost an hour going into the bay. <laughs> and they uh, they have these – you know, and it's like – these boats are not, like, all that suitable for – choppy water and they have these like you know like a 40 foot long spray skirt <laughs> they like unroll and snap <laughs> to the side of the boat <laughs> and we make those so, uh, by the way <laughs> <laughs> so I think they you know the first boat actually like flipped twice in the bay and had to oh you know negotiate that and you know knowing that that other team was breathing down their neck uh, but they still you know pulled in I think five minutes ahead wow <laughs> wow and do the do you think the team boats do they like take turns and kind of like rest or sleep like on the boat and shifts? You think or are they all just like up and pulling for the whole time? Those fast boats are are up and pulling the whole time. The uh, I've heard that you know, I mean, what's really impressive is I mean, yeah, those guys are like pretty awesome. The guys who finished up front, but you know, the guys who took like ninety five hours or whatever is like pretty impressive too. And from what I understand is that sometimes those boats do that where, you know, one, one person sleeps and the other person just steers it. Uh, on that river, it's, it's a little bit, you know, there are a lot of trees in that river. And uh, I don't think that, you know, that can be lightly done, especially at night. How many times, like an hour, do you think you had to get out of your boat to deal with something? At the beginning, uh, it was like all the time, you know, there's a dam every few miles, it seemed like. Uh, and then, I mean, really on the second day, or, I mean, you can really go from, you can go, I don't know, for 15 hours or whatever without getting out of your boat if you wanted to. It was, uh, <laughs> it was nothing really on the Guadalupe to, to make you stop. Like, I, I was sort of looking forward to this one set of rapids kind of all day, you know, it was just like something to see. And I never even. <laughs> saw them like <laughs> I don't know I guess I ran them but so these guys who finished in like 95 hours what is what's the time cutoff well so the, yeah there are cutoffs at each uh you know at each checkpoint and uh I think they you know that's what 
kicks a lot of people out of the race and it'll make a cutoff. Uh, but yeah, hundred hours overall is the cutoff. And there are definitely people who, I don't know. I mean, certainly it happens that people make it to the last check or don't make it to, at the last checkpoint, you know, and have to, have to, you know, drive the rest of the way. Uh, but yeah, it is pretty, pretty cool to be on the river for that long and just, you know, keep at it. Very cool. Well, congratulations, <laughs> Andrew. Oh, thank you. Yeah, that's awesome. Yeah, seriously. <laughs> All right. Well, I think that pretty much sums it up for the Texas Water Safari. I'm, uh, I've just registered while we've been recording this show. <laughs> and and Calhoun, suck it. <laughs> I think that's the other thing we learned. <laughs> it's like the, like the kick Jeff Calhoun episode. Oh. <laughs> Calhoun's a sensitive guy, man. You guys he's are... Very yeah, he's a delicate flower. <laughs> uh, but this is the way you get him to do stuff. You sort of prod the bear a little bit with the exactly. stick and then see what happens. We love you, Jeff. Don't take us wrong way. Well, thanks so much for coming on the show, Andrew, and uh, and and we'll have to we'll have to catch up with you later. Okay, thank you. Thanks, dude. Sure thing. Later. Ninety-five hours. Oh, that's a race. That's <laughs> that's impressive. I'm just telling you. Um, should we just rapid fire right into our next toughest race? Yeah. Person here. We got Aniel Sarasolsis on the line here, North Fork champion for 2018. Let's get right into it. What is your paddle length and offset, Aniel? What is my paddling offset? <laughs> your paddle length. <laughs> your paddle length of your paddle and the feather offset. Um, I use 200 centimeters and 45 for offset, always. Okay, that's okay. Okay, yeah. We can, right. we can, You're good. We can move we, on. We can here. keep going. <laughs> um, Aniel really needs no introduction. The last time that will do it for part one of Toughest Races with Andrew McEwen and Aniel Sarah Solsis. Stay tuned for the rest of Aniel's interview, more viewer mail, and of course, rants and rays. As always, thank you for listening to The Hammer Factor. What can I say, yo? I guess you don't know. I feel like this world keeps people